everybody. Our Bible reading today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 15. I wish you would put up with a little foolishness from me. Yes, do put up with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit, which you had not received, or if a different gospel, which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. Now I consider myself in no way inferior to those super-apostles. Even if I am untrained in public speaking, I am certainly not untrained in knowledge. Indeed, we have in every way made that clear to you in everything. Or did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by taking pay from them to minister to you. When I was present with you and in need, I did not burden anyone, since the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. I have kept myself and will keep myself from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I don't love you? God knows I do. But I will continue to do what I am doing in order to deny an opportunity to those who want to be regarded as our equals in what they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no great surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will be according to their works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now on the subject of untrained public speaking and foolish boasting, it's on with the sermon. Well, at the end of this month, on October 31st, we will mark Reformation Day, and this is the day where we celebrate the great Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, and one of the champions of that Reformation, one of the champions of that movement was a guy named Martin Luther. You're probably familiar with him. Uh, He worked tirelessly for the cause of Protestantism. His great burden was that the word of God in the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures would be translated into the vernacular so that the people of God could read the Bible for themselves. Up to this point, it was only available in Latin and only the priests 
and the papacy could read Latin and therefore they could determine what it meant and what the people ought to believe. And Martin Luther had a great passion for people to be able to read the Bible for themselves. And so he went to battle with the greatest superpower of the day in the Roman Catholic Church. And towards the end of his life, uh, right before he died, the final treatise that he wrote was written as he saw the power of the papacy sort of uh, clenching its fist around the Reformation that had only just begun. And he was fearful for the people and the perilous state of their souls under the leadership of the papacy and the Roman Catholic Church. And so he wrote this treatise. And I want to read a few quotes from it for you. It's titled, Against the Papacy, An Institution of the Devil. Now, they say you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but I think we, uh, we can tell from that title what he's getting at. Here's a few of the, uh, the choice quotes from it. Writing against the papacy, against the Pope, he said, May God punish you. I say, you shameless, barefaced liar, devil's mouthpiece, who dares to spit out before God, before all the angels, before the dear son, before all the world, your devil's filth. He goes on. A natural donkey which carries sacks to the mill and eats thistles can judge you. Indeed, all creatures can. For a donkey knows it's a donkey. But you mad asses do not know you are asses. This cracks me up. He goes on. You are desperate, thorough, arch rascals, murderers, traitors, liars, the very scum of all the most evil people on the earth. You are full of all the worst devils in hell, full, full, and so full that you can do nothing but vomit, throw, and blow out devils. And finally, you say, what comes out of our mouth must be kept. I hear it. Which mouth do you mean? The one from which the farts come? You can keep that to yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, Martin Luther against the Roman papacy, an institution of the devil. And Martin Luther wasn't afraid to be tough with those people whom he saw as leading people away from the gospel, leading people away from the truth. And in that, he is really no different from Paul, the apostle. In the text that we just read, you heard him going to war with those who would seek to lead people away from the gospel. And then both of them, Luther and St. Paul, are really emulating and imitating the Lord Jesus, who himself took on the religious leaders of the day, who himself referred to them as a brood of vipers and sons of the devil. And so this harsh language that we're about to look at directed against his opponents in Corinth, is really in keeping with the words and the ministry of the Lord Jesus himself. And so I want to pick it up and read verse 1, and we'll make our way through 
the rest of this text together. So verse 1, he says, I wish you would put up with a little foolishness from me. Yes, do put up with me. He's introducing a line of argument that really we'll get into more next week as we look at verses 16 to 33. But the foolishness he's referring to is this boasting that he feels he needs to do, this boasting which he really abhorred. Um, but feels he needs to participate in in order to loose the Corinthian church away from these false teachers who had come in to undermine him, these false teachers who came in boasting about their status. He feels he needs to stoop to their level, to this level of foolishness, to speak like a madman, as he says, in order to make his argument. Now, why does he need to do this? Why does he need to take these drastic measures and, and indulge in something that, he, he, that so irritated him? Well, he says in verse 2 and 3, the reason. He says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present you a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This is what's at stake right now. Paul, as the founder of the church in Corinth, as the one who brought the gospel to them, sees himself as a, a father in the faith to them. He sees them as this pure virgin that he's promised to Jesus, right? That the, the church is the bride of Christ and he has promised them to him for the, the marriage supper and consummation that's to come when Jesus comes back and restores all things. But he's fearful that in the meantime, as we wait for Jesus' return, th this bride, this pure virgin is going to start making eyes at other husbands. That they're going to be drawn away by these false apostles and by a false gospel. And so he says, I'm fearful for you. And the analogy that comes to his mind is, is, is logical. His mind goes to the first bride, Eve herself, and to that tragic event in human history where the bride Eve is deceived and lured away from her faithful commitment to God by Satan himself. Satan utterly deceived her and led her away from relationship with God. And that's what Paul fears here. He's, he fears that the Corinthians are going to be led astray. Now he's been really encouraged by Titus. Remember we read earlier, Titus has told him that his previous letter, his terse letter, has had the effect that he intended, that the Corinthians have repented, but he's still fearful. He still thinks they're in danger. They're in danger of, of turning back towards these false teachers and being lured away from the truth. And the cause of the danger is what he moves on to next. So in verse 4 he says, for if a person comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which you had not received, or a different gospel which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. He's seen in their behavior this, the ease with which they receive this different Jesus, different spirit, different gospel. 
And these false teachers have come in preaching a different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. And he is fearful that they will continue to lap it up. You put it up, you put up with it splendidly, he says. They've got no qualms about receiving this false teaching. This should give us pause. Because while we might see the greatest threats to gospel fidelity being, you know, the atheists or peddlers of other religions, it seems from this passage that actually the biggest threat is not the atheists or the foreign, the, the other religions. It is, in fact, people who come preaching Jesus. These false teachers were coming with Jesus on their lips. They were speaking of the Spirit. They were preaching, in their words, the gospel. And yet Paul can see that what they are peddling is absolutely different, absolutely diabolically different to the gospel that he presented to them, to the Jesus, to the Spirit that he preached to them, that they received, that bore their salvation. And so he makes his first foolish boast in verse 5 to 6. He says, Now I consider myself in no way inferior to those super apostles. Even if I am untrained in public speaking, I am certainly not untrained in knowledge. Indeed, we have in every way made that clear to you in everything. So he makes this boast. I'm not inferior to these super apostles. He calls them super apostles, you know, in quotation marks. It's his, his kind of ironic, sarcastic name for them. He wants to show the Corinthians that they are in no way equal to him in his apostolic authority to preach the gospel, the true gospel. So he laces his language, referring to them with irony, with sarcasm, these super apostles. I remember in year seven, I moved from the the little primary school I went to, little local primary school to Kerry Grammar School. And on the first day, I saw this guy um, opening his locker above mine. He had the locker above me. And I was like, what is a teacher doing opening someone's locker. And then I noticed he was in uniform. I was like, what is a teacher doing in school uniform? This is weird. It turns out he wasn't a teacher. He was a year seven kid from Sweden um, who had just come out to Australia and he was a man. He, you know, like he was in my class. He told me he was 12 or 13 years old, but he was a fully grown man. His name was Martin Lundgren. And we called him Dolph after the Swedish actor who he looked uncannily like in every way. And when I went to school in year seven, I was all of four foot two and tiny, like just skinny, tiny little kid. And I had this monster, this giant of a man, boy, man, uh, who had the locker above me. And we ended up becoming good friends. But he used to refer to me as big guy and obviously since I could barely reach his belt buckle he was 
being ironic, right? It was a sarcastic name for me as this tiny little kid. And that's really what Paul's doing here. When he calls them super apostles, he doesn't mean that they are apostles or that there's anything super about them. He's being ironic. And he says, I might be untrained in speaking, but I'm not untrained in knowledge. By the standards of the day and by the, the, the area of the Greco-Roman world in which Corinth was situated in Achaia, southern Greece, there was this great appreciation for public speaking. I think we've spoken about this a few times before, but the rhetorician, the man who had been trained to speak publicly, was lauded highly and, and, and was rewarded with, with uh, great riches on account of his ability to speak. And Paul says, in response to the charge of the super apostles that he's unimpressive in stature and in public speaking, he kind of admits it. He says, yeah, I'm not trained like these guys are. I'm not trained in public speaking. Even if I am untrained, he says in verse 6, I am certainly not untrained in knowledge. And this is the thing he wants to point out to them. You can, he, he wants them to know you can be a great speaker who has nothing to say. And we've seen this in our own day, right? You can be a great preacher. You can have, you know, record numbers of downloads on your podcast, thousands of people in the audience to listen to you speak each week and have nothing to say, nothing of substance, nothing that requires any level of knowledge of the gospel or of the scriptures. And so while he admits that he's untrained in speaking, he says, my knowledge far outweighs theirs. Now he says and he admits, yes, they're right. I'm not a great speaker. I'm not trained in rhetoric. And then he counters the next argument that they had against him. Not only is he untrained, but he doesn't even charge for his speaking. This is another sort of culturally bound issue, but not unlike our own day, that a, a speaker could demonstrate his credentials by how much he could earn through speaking. And Paul says... I haven't charged you anything. And this was actually a charge that was leveled against him. He doesn't even charge for speaking. Maybe he's got nothing to say. Maybe the gospel isn't worth anything. That's why he's giving it away for free. And so he speaks to this in verse 7 to 9. Or did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by taking pay from them to minister to you. When I was present with you and in need, I did not burden anyone since the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. I've kept myself and will keep myself from burdening you in any way. So he explains the reason that I haven't charged money for my ministry to you is not because I've got nothing to say. It's not because what I am saying is of no worth. It's because I didn't want to burden you. 
In fact, other churches have been burdened so that you don't have to be. Even Macedonia, those poor, poverty-stricken Christians, they're the ones who supplied my need when I was ministering to you. Now, in a 2013 Forbes article, 2013, like 100 years ago, uh, this article was trying to give pointers to public speakers about how much they ought to charge. And there's a whole list of recommendations to them. The first two caught my eye. First two points of the article were this. Number one, if you charge less than $10,000 per speech, speaker bureaus won't be very interested in you. Which is explained by point two. The fee you charge becomes a perception of quality and that's the most important aspect. That's what's going on here with Paul. They're degrading him as a speaker. They're degrading his ministry because he's preaching for free. And the same thing happens to us today. The Christian world is not exempt from this situation. I read in that article that Bill and Hillary Clinton charged $200,000 per speech. That was 2013. It can only be more than that now. But Christians do the same things. I heard of one pastor who is charging $30,000 to speak at a conference. And the reason that people who put on conferences pay that kind of money is because it's seen as a, a qualitative measure. That if you're good enough, you can charge as much as you like. But Paul won't do it. Paul won't do it. Paul won't play that game. He won't do what the super apostles are doing, going around charging money for preaching the gospel. In fact, he said, if you remember back in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, we do not market the word of God for profit like so many, referring to these guys. On the contrary, we speak with sincerity in Christ as from God and before God. Now, whether or not this was a poor reflection on him in the cultural context of the day, he's not buying it. He's not going to go down that track. He wants his conscience clear before God. And so he says, I'm going to go on doing it this way. I don't care what you say. I don't care what the fallout is. I will not burden you in any way. Now, he defends in elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 15 and other places, the right of Christian ministers, ministers to be paid for their ministry. Don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, right? They're deserving of being paid. But in this situation, he's not going to do it so that he can distance himself from those super apostles. He wants the point of difference to be very clear. And then he saves his most damning indictment, literally damning indictment for last. And we'll read about it in verse 13 to 15. He says, such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
So it is no great surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will be according to their works. These super apostles, these false apostles are coming in all smiles. They're coming in talking about Jesus and the spirit and the gospel. And that's where they're at their most dangerous. Friends, when you come across a false teacher, when you come across someone who is seeking to lead you away from the gospel and towards whatever message they're peddling in its stead, you won't see cloven hooves. They won't be carrying a pitchfork. They'll all be all smiles and winsome speech and religious language. They'll be using the name of Jesus, just as these false apostles did. That's where they're at their most dangerous. If they just came out with this whole diabolical strategy, identified themselves as servants of Satan, then of course they would have no place. We'd close our ears to them. We'd renounce them and denounce them. That's not the way things work. Just as Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so these false teachers disguise themselves. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They're all smiles. In fact, I can think of one particular false teacher who's very famous for his winsome smile. And this is why we're in such danger. We are in more danger now than the Corinthians were. In, in, in that day, if you're a false teacher, you had to infiltrate the church. You had to become a part of the community. And then you could do your work of undermining and leading astray. Now we have these false teachers infiltrating our homes via the internet. They're on YouTube. They have podcasts. They write Christian books. You go into a Christian bookshop and you will see false apostles, false teachers, servants of Satan, penning Christian books. And so our danger is much more acute than those of the Corinthians. I don't say this lightly. Our danger is acute. We've been promised as a pure virgin to Christ. And we've been called to take up our cross and follow him. Many of these false teachers will be offering you something in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Spirit, in the name of the gospel, which seeks to, to, to demonstrate a Christian life from you, for you, which is free from taking up your cross. They'll sell a Christian life to you, which is all prosperity, health and wealth. But that's not the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Our gospel is a cruciform gospel. It's a cross-shaped gospel. Our Christian calling is to take up our cross and follow him. It's what Paul was doing in the next chapter, in the next part of the chapter uh, that we'll see next week. He's going to 
boast in all of the sufferings that he's been through as an apostle of Christ, far from disqualifying him from that designation as apostle, it actually qualifies him. It shows that he's following in Jesus' footsteps. Now, I really like what D.A. Carson says about this and as he illustrates the danger that we're in from these smiling, winsome, false teachers. D.A. Carson says, Christians are especially open to the kind of cunning deceit that combines the language of faith and religion with the content of self-interest and flattery. We like to be told how special we are, he says, how wise, how blessed. We like to have our Christianity shaped less by the cross than by triumphalism or rules or charismatic leaders or subjective experience. And if this shaping can be coated with assurances of orthodoxy, complete with cliché, we may not detect the presence of the arch-deceiver, nor see that we are being weaned away from sincere and pure devotion to Christ, to a different gospel. It's so well put. And I think it accurately describes the danger that we are in, just as the Corinthian church was. And so how do we insulate ourselves from this kind of thing? How do we armor ourselves against the attacks of the enemy, even as he disguises himself as an angel of light? How do we keep at bay those servants of Satan who claim to be servants of righteousness? I've got three things and there are more that we can do. But first of all, we need to be plugged into a gospel-centered church. This is why Paul is writing to the church, encouraging them to come back to the gospel because he knows there is safety. To be an active participatory member of a gospel-centered church is the first line of defense for us. And so whoever you are, wherever you're watching this from today, make that your priority. When you move to a new location, make that a priority. Before getting a good school or a good job or a nice house, make a gospel-centered church the key priority. It is the first line of defense against being weaned away from pure devotion to Christ. Then I would say make sure you ground yourself in the word. This is going to happen if you're part of a gospel-centered church, but you ought to take up your own responsibility to be grounded in the word of God. It is the sword of the spirit. It's powerful to protect us from Satan's schemes. To know well what God has said will protect you from listening to what others are saying. It will protect you from receiving a false gospel because you'll know so clearly what the true gospel is. And thanks to Martin Luther and the other 
forerunners of that reformation. We have the Bible written in our language. You've probably got several copies in your house at home. Let's not neglect it. Let's not dishonor their legacy by failing to ground ourselves in the pure word of God. So become part of a, and I mean a participatory part, right? A, an active member of a gospel-centered church. Ground yourself well in the word of God. Read it every day. Bible before phone, right? First thing in the morning. Soak in the scriptures. And finally, surround yourself with a family of believers. Again, this will be the product of being part of a gospel-centered church, but you might need to be deliberate in seeking out wise, mature, battle-hardened Christians who can join you in this fight against the designs of the devil. Make it a priority to get a mentor, an older Christian brother or sister, or someone who's more mature in the faith, who can walk with you, who can keep you accountable, who you can uh, refer to when you hear something that sounds a little bit like the gospel but may not be true. You can go to those people. They can pray with you. They can counsel you. This is so important that we're not just out on our own. It's when we're out on our own as sheep that we'll be most susceptible and vulnerable to wolves in sheep's clothing. So please make those three things a priority, lest you be led away from the truth, from pure and sincere devotion to Christ. You've been promised to him. He's coming soon. Keep yourself pure. I want to finish our time by reading a, a blessing over us, a, a benediction, which seemed appropriate. This comes from the end of the book of Jude. And from verse 20 through to 25, I want to read it for you. I, I ask that as I do, you might want to close your eyes and just receive this as a blessing. Receive this as instruction. Receive this as a, a benediction, as a charge as we go out. Jude 20. But you, dear friends... As you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.